Hello and welcome. The following message is from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. Hi friends. Well, come back with me a couple thousand years ago, if you would. We're in, uh, imagine that we're in Capernaum. And imagine that there's a dispute raging between the, the Pharisees who rule the synagogue there in the town and a few of the local families, okay? Like, imagine that they had this arrangement. The families made a deal with the Pharisees that in exchange for five years of service from, from their sons, the sons serve in the synagogue for five years, and in exchange, these families get their own seats in the synagogue, they get their Sabbath meals provided for free, and they save on a whole bunch of taxes. Like, they're exempt from the temple tax and other taxes that, that other families might have to pay. And that's the arrangement that is in force for five years. But at the end of that five years, imagine it's time for the parents to come and collect their sons. And they're really excited. They're really looking forward to getting their sons to come home. But the Pharisees still need them. And so the Pharisees say, well, we're sorry, families. We, the, uh, the situation has changed. We've actually seen a lot of growth. And we need to keep your sons on for at least another year. The parents, as you can appreciate, they'd be pretty upset by this. They'd be like, well, what are you talking about? You, you swore. We had a, an arrangement. We made a deal. We made a vow to one another. And the Pharisees would say, yes, that's true. Nevertheless, we believe that you'll find that the law is on our side in this matter. And the parents would ask, well, what are you, what are you talking about? And the Pharisees would say, well, look here, if you would, if, the, if you will refer to the logbook of the synagogue with us, we, you'll see that the wording of our arrangement says, we swear by the altar in Jerusalem. May the altar turn to dust and we replace it if we fail to keep up our end and release your sons at the end of five years. Well, for the, for the parents, it's like case closed. That's the end of the argument. They, they go like, see, it's right there. But the Pharisees would say, yes, but that was a vow on the altar and not a vow on the meat, not a vow on the sacrifice, you see. And so therefore, this vow doesn't have the force of law. Well, the parents would say, well, what's the difference? Isn't a vow a vow? We want our sons. And the Pharisees would say, actually, no, a vow isn't a vow. You see, we can afford to use another altar, but we can't afford to eat rotten meat. Are you kidding? And the parents, as you can appreciate, they'd be totally defeated and dejected by this outcome. They'd be like, wow, I can't, we can't believe the Pharisees treasure meat and treasure the sacrifice above the altar itself. They, they, they treasure the, the meat above their own word, above keeping their word, above honoring God. Like these guys are totally blind. And they'd have no choice but to go home without their sons. Well, here's another scenario to imagine. Imagine that, um, imagine that the Pharisees have a falling out with the leaders of the synagogue in their town. You know, they don't like how the leaders are leading. And so the Pharisees decide, we're going to start our own synagogue just up the street. And let's say that it's standard practice in, in every synagogue that if you're a member of that synagogue, you are required to pay a full tithe, which actually means not 10%, but 23% of your income. So like when you sign the membership covenant of that synagogue, you make a vow, we will tithe our full 23% of our income. May the wicked rob the temple of its gold and it fall to me to replace that gold if we fail to pay the tithes. 
But suppose this is a new synagogue and the Pharisees... But suppose in this new synagogue, the Pharisees have this idea, we're going to change it. We're going to improve it. We're going to make it more appealing and, and, and more enticing for families. And so in their synagogue, it's not we're going to require our full 23% and you swear on the gold. Now it's, hey, we swear by the temple that we will pay our tithes. May the temple collapse and we rebuild if we fail to pay it. Now, now, just to be clear, like many of the families in this culture haven't even seen the temple, so nobody really knows what they're swearing on. Nobody really takes that vow very seriously. And so members might put in kind of a token amount from time to time. They pay what they can what they can, what's convenient, and what's, what's comfortable. But most of them aren't going to keep a, a vow and actually give a full 23%. Not only that, not only are the members not going to put that amount into the pot, but the leaders aren't going to require it. They're not going to chase them down and, and sort of keep people accountable for the vow that they made. Now, in that context, you've got two synagogues, one where people are held to a very high standard, one where people are held to almost no standard at all, which synagogue do you think the average family is going to join? Are they going to join the one that holds us to our vow, or are they going to join the one that gives us a pass on keeping our word? Well, of course, they're going to join the one that makes fewer demands. And that synagogue may get to be you know, 10 times the size of every other synagogue because of it. They might become the mega synagogue and and it'll have all of the appearances of success in that culture, except its leaders are blind. They're blind. And in today's woe, you know, as we continue through this study of the different woes that Jesus pronounces over the Pharisees, this time, what's going to become clear is that Jesus isn't so much upset over the breaking of vows, although certainly that's a thing, like that's a problem, but there's a problem beneath the problem, and we need to get at what that is if we want to apply this woe to our own context, to our own culture. And I think that the the clue to understanding the problem here is in the word blind. So come back with me to the text. This is Matthew 23, beginning at verse uh, 16. So this one is is a little different. This time Jesus doesn't follow the normal formula of woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, because you do this and this and this. This time, uh, Jesus calls them blind. In fact, he calls them blind three times. In verse 16, he calls them blind guides. In verse 17, it's you blind fools. And in verse 19, it's you blind men. So three times he calls the Pharisees blind. Now, what does he mean that they're blind? What does blindness have to do with what's going on? Well, this is really important. Consider this in terms, in, in light of what Jesus has said and in light of the sorts of things that the Pharisees are doing. By the time of Jesus, the Pharisees are responsible for having created a, a religious system where you get to break your word and betray one another when it suits you without any consequences. Because of the Pharisees, you get away with treating holy things like like the temple and the altar, even heaven itself. You get away with treating them as though they are less important than tangible things like meat and gold. Okay? Because of the Pharisees, you get to enjoy all the benefits of being in a covenant community without any of its obligations or any of its expectations. And you get to live how you want 
And it's a system, thanks to the Pharisees, it's a system that makes almost no demands in terms of your beliefs or your character or your behavior. And you get and you get and you get. And it's a great deal. And you know what? There is a word for this. It's consumerism. Consumerism. It is the problem beneath the problem here. Consumerism has blinded the Pharisees. They can't even see all of the ways that they have taken God and his people and turned these into commodities, turned them into uh, you know, things you can buy and sell and exploit in order to get the kind of religious experience you want. That's the woe here. That's why Jesus is upset, and he's very upset. In fact, I don't think it would be an overstatement to say that God hates consumerism. I don't think that's an overstatement to say God hates consumerism, especially the baptized version in our culture, which is consumer Christianity. Okay? Because Jesus says discipleship isn't cheap and it's not easy. It's actually quite costly. And we see this all over the New Testament. But for example, Jesus asks the people considering following him in Luke 14, he says, which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost whether he has enough to complete it? And then he says in in Luke 9, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. And so we don't rush blindly into discipleship because disciples have certain obligations toward him and toward each other. And disciples of Jesus, followers of Jesus, we actually take those seriously. Like those matter to us. And so while Jesus is asking his disciples to count the costs before we follow him, consumer Christianity is trying to cut the costs. Do you see that? The Pharisees... And even in the modern version, consumer Christianity, they're trying to cut the costs, make it as simple, easy, comfortable as possible to be a follower of of Jesus and have a religious experience. Jesus says, no, 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 we're not about cutting the costs. We're about counting the costs. And today we want to ask, is this really a problem for the modern church? Like, is this a problem for the church today? How many of you think so? How many of you think, uh, like, you've seen examples of consumer Christianity in the church today? How many of you have seen that? Yeah, wow, a lot of hands. Almost all the hands are up. Um, let's let's take a minute and and hear how other people uh, have addressed this problem of consumer Christianity. Let's hear how other what other people have to say. One is an author named Tina Dare. She's a blogger. She's a ministry director from the United States. Here's what she has to say about consumerism. She says none of us is a conscious convert to this religion of consumerism. We are discipled in it from childhood. It offers a story that attempts to rival the biblical story. The God of consumerism gives us the illusion of power with little cost to ourselves. The true God calls us to lay everything down at his feet. Isn't that true? Listen to this from Sean Cross. Sean is a church planter in the United States and a blogger. He says, it is so easy for churches to fall into the trap of consumerism. We, the church, provide a a good, an on-demand product, whether God or music or a message, for the customer, who are the churchgoers. And in this model, the church shifts from a radically diverse family who follows Jesus together to a transactional corporation largely filled with consumers. 
So friends, can you, can you see why consumerism is such a problem? Can you see why it's so dangerous? Can you see why we need to have this conversation about consumerism today? Well, one more uh, quote. This one is from Jamie Smith. He has a book called You Are What You Love. And here's what he has to say about consumerism. He says, I think consumerism is the most potent rival to the gospel that we encounter. It doesn't present you with ideas to believe. It gives you rituals that you live into that, over time, change what you want and what you think will make you happy. Consumerism's evangelism is marketing And marketing works by telling you a story of what the so-called good life looks like, where everybody's happy and enjoying everything. Unfortunately, the Christian response to the liturgies of consumerism is often woefully inadequate, even a sort of parody of them all. Rather than properly countering the liturgy of consumption, the church ends up mimicking it, merely substituting Christian commodities. The evangelical community simply replays the gospel of consumption, but with Jesus stuff. Jesus stuff. Isn't that great? Isn't that so I just think that is so helpful. You know, a couple of years ago I was invited to meet with the pastor of a mega church in another city. I'm not going to say which one, but um so it was myself and this pastor and the chair of their board uh joined us too. And this church is on a whole nother level. They have a, a multi-million dollar budget, they've got dozens of staff and there are thousands of people who drive in from, from up to an hour away to attend one of their four weekend services. They've got an amazing band. There's like mood lighting, a very high production value, very slick and professional, okay? And these guys had questions about me and about my story and about Benediction and about Benediction's story. And for a while, it was actually a really great conversation. But then it started to feel like a job interview. And the thing was, this... I, this was their idea. They asked me to come. I didn't ask, I didn't set this up. This was their idea. After a few minutes, I actually realized that what they were hoping to do was to take us over, kind of adopt us and rebrand Benediction as their church plant in Hamilton. And so I explained how actually we intentionally didn't start with some of the things that are really high values for this church. We didn't start with a, a really slick, sexy worship service because even though you can grow a church really quickly that way, what we've learned is that you, you grow by actually shrinking other churches. And we didn't want to do that. Now, fun fact, that's actually almost exactly how these guys plant churches. So, so yeah, the conversation didn't really go that far. We obviously agreed it wasn't going to be a good fit. If, and of course, it's not a good fit because you guys look at what we do here. Look at what we do as a, as a faith community. When we get together to worship and when we get together outside of this, this is weird. What we're doing here is weird. It's not, you, it's not easy to brand. People are like, are we Baptists? Are we Anglicans? Are we Reformed? Like, pick a team, Benediction. And, and what we're doing here, it doesn't, like, it, does, it, it doesn't follow a formula. Like, it doesn't grow quickly if it grows at all. There's no guarantees here. It's hard to measure. You, 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 how do you know if it's working or not? People really like very visible, easy, you know, measurables. There's no, there's, it's really hard to measure whether this is working. And there's no target audience. And, and so for, for all these reasons, what we're doing here and what, what other, many other, you know, church plants of, of our, of our uh, size and of our, uh, of our kind are, are doing, it doesn't, these don't really appeal to consumers. 
We don't appeal to consumers. That's actually quite intentional. Consumers don't last long in Benediction Church, and I'm actually okay with that. Now, just to be clear, I'm not saying that big churches are all consumeristic and small ones are not. I think that there are lots of big churches that do not, you know, sort of cater to consumers, and there's lots of small ones that actually really do cater to consumers. I actually think that there are big churches that are great and that are going to reach people that we won't, and so we need both. I am not against big churches, um, but I do think it's important to recognize consumerism is alive and well, and in our culture, it might be the single biggest threat to, to Christians and to our churches. Let me say that again. I think in our culture, consumerism may be the single biggest threat to Christians and to their churches. And if consumerism is the culture, like if it's just, if that's the culture we live in, then what we need are strong solutions that are countercultural. Let me offer a solution today that I think is counterculture. Here's what I propose. It's, a, it's an ancient practice that, that has kind of, in some ways, I think, fallen out of favor among uh, young churches, among evangelicals. But I, but I actually think this thing is the bane of consumerism. It's membership. Good, old-fashioned church membership, okay? And what I want to do today in, in the time we've got is just to show why I think that membership isn't only biblical, but it's actually a great strategy for getting consumerism in check, okay? I see, I see membership is, is, is not just biblical, it's also a great strategy for getting consumerism in check. Now, first, let's just be clear. What are we talking about here by membership? What do, what, what do we mean? What we mean is that in, in membership, we've got believers who are formally joined to other believers in order to worship and to pray and to grow and to be out and active on, on mission together, like to be the church. Okay, that's how we relate to one another. And, and it's formal. It's, it's formal in the sense that it's a decision. There's a step involved. There's some kind of a process of identifying with one another. It, our leadership team, we like to use the language of putting a ring on it. Like in membership, we put a ring on it. We pledge ourselves to the church, and the church pledges itself to us. And that's, what, that's what's involved in, in membership. And, and, and when that happens, that relationship, that, that commitment or covenant, that offers certain benefits, but it also requires certain obligations. And the older that I've gotten and the, the longer that I've spent in, in church world, you know, the more I'm persuaded about membership because it clarifies our expectations of, of each other. Don't you think? Like it removes all guesswork in terms of what's fair to expect. I actually tend to think of church membership as a, as a spiritual discipline for us in our day. I, I, I really think that. I really think church membership is a spiritual discipline. Even so, even all of that said, as much of a proponent of membership as I am, I do need to say it's not a command in Scripture. Okay, If you're not a member of Benediction Church, or if you're not a member yet, you are not in sin. Please don't feel judged. Please don't look, feel like we don't look down on you. Please don't feel like you are less uh, of a follower of Jesus than other people who maybe are members. We're not saying that you're less faithful. But what I would say is this. Christians who do identify with a church in membership are far less vulnerable to the power of consumerism than those who don't. I really believe that. That those who do identify with a church in membership are far less vulnerable to the power of consumerism than those who don't. And I think that that's biblical. 
I think that's biblical. I don't love using the word biblical, but I really think it's true. So just to be clear, what we mean by biblical, what I'm saying when I, when I, when I say that membership is biblical, what I'm saying is that it, is, it was the normal practice for Christians and churches to commit to each other by some formal step or some formal process. And I, I grant that that process isn't described, it's not spelled out for us, it's not prescribed in the New Testament. I actually think that that's a good thing because it forces us to create a process for ourselves in our own context, given our own, our own mission and our values and beliefs. So, so I, that, that process isn't described in the New Testament, but it is assumed. It's assumed. Like, in other words, the, the texts, the parts of the New Testament that deal with the relationship between Christians and their churches, those texts only make sense. Those instructions only make sense if that formal commitment already exists. That's what we mean when we say that membership is biblical. Okay? We're, we're saying that this, the New Testament assumes that believers are connected to one another in these formal relationships of, of membership. Now, we could make that argument from a lot of places in Scripture. Uh, I, I think I, elsewhere I've written that there are there may be as many as nine that we, we could make. I wanted to just share three briefly. The first uh, it comes from the book of Hebrews. So if you would, just maybe turn with me to the book of Hebrews in chapter 13, where we find this, this uh, you know, fairly familiar instruction. It's from chapter 13, verse 17. We could actually preach a whole sermon against consumerism just from this verse. But here's what the author of Hebrews says in chapter 13, verse 17. He says, Have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority, because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy and not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. Okay, so now I want to notice something about this, about this text. This command assumes that there are times in church life when people uh, want something that's different from what the leaders want for the people. Like the leaders have a sense of what's, what's right or what's, what God is calling us to as a church or as a, as a community, and the people disagree. Some, you understand that? Do you see how the text assumes that sometimes the people and the leadership are at odds? Well, the writer's solution is countercultural. Have confidence in your leaders. Have confidence in them. Some, some versions go, uh, go further and are, are stronger on this. They say, obey your leaders and submit to them. Now, before you can obey that instruction, you first need to know, well, who are my leaders? Like, who do I submit to? Who, who don't I submit to? Like, that's, that's important, right? And so it, it's important from the perspective of the people on the ground who relate to their leaders, but it's also important from the point of view of the leaders themselves. Because the leaders need to ask themselves, well, who am I accountable for? Who am I responsible for? Why is it fair that you here in the room can expect certain things from Pastor Mike, but the believers at Eucharist or Philpot or St. Clair, they can't have those same expectations of Pastor Mike. Why is that? What, what, what was the mechanism or what was the process by which it became fair for you guys to expect that, but those guys cannot? And what I'm saying is that apart from some way of formalizing the expectations and the commitments that we have of each other, apart from some formal way by which a leader becomes your leader, this is actually impossible to follow. Something needs to happen in order for us to understand 
who are our leaders and who our leaders are responsible for. So I think that that's assumed in the text, and that's really important. Well, here's more evidence that that membership is actually a biblical practice. Come on over with me to uh, Matthew 18. Okay, come back to Matthew 18, and uh, let's consider what Jesus had to say about resolving conflict in the church. And here again, this may be a, a familiar text again, but Jesus knew he assumes that Christians are going to sin against each other. So that's not a surprise uh, to Jesus. He assumes that that's going to happen. So it's, this is not an if, this is a when. And so when it does happen, there are some steps to follow. Okay? Especially when it happens in, in a church. Like when brother A sins against brother B, or sister A sins against sister B, here are the steps that need to be followed. Jesus says, if your brother, well, let's call him Chad, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you so that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So you see, after a lot of other steps, you tell the church right? You, you see that where he says that in, in verse 17, you tell, quote, the church. Now, who is that? Well, we'll come to that in a minute. And then in the process, if, as it continues, if that doesn't work, if Chad doesn't listen to you, you actually have no choice left but to exclude Chad from certain aspects of life in the church. And so you, you're treating Chad now as though he is a Gentile and tax collector. He's welcome to join and, and participate and attend certain events, but you're not going to ask him to lead. You're not going to ask him to pray out from the front. You're not going to ask him to serve communion or teach a sermon. Uh, and, and, and so hopefully he misses you know, those, those uh, roles and those involvements enough that it motivates him to repent and to be reconciled to the church. Right? So that's the vision. That's, the, that's Jesus' aim here, is by putting this person out, uh, by excluding this person in certain ways for a, for a time, it makes them realize how much it means to them to be part of this community so that they come back. But notice, these instructions only work if there exists some identifiable group that Chad and we all agree can be called the church. Do you see that? There has to be such a thing as the church that is distinct from every other group of people. It, you know, the church needs to be distinct from, say, the neighbors or the people at the marketplace or the people at the synagogue. There has to be an identifiable group we can agree is the church. If not, then when we go through these, these steps, then Chad can very easily object and say, you guys, you had no right to tell those people what I did. You had no right to do that because they're not the church. That's not the church over there. This is the church over here. If you were going to tell anybody, you should have told these people, not those people, because they're not the church. Or Chad could make another objection. He could say, you guys can't exclude me from the church because I never joined the church in the first place. Like, you can't formally exclude me from these things because I never really, never formally joined. You can't exclude a person from something they, that they never asked to be included in. 
right? Do you see that? There, so clearly there, there must be some formal way of Chad identifying with this church. Another ob- objection Chad might make is, you guys, you can't judge me for what I've done here because I'm not a member. You have no right to treat me like this. You have no right to expect any different from me because show me where I promised I wouldn't do this. Well, that's what membership is. And so the only reason they can, the only way that they can hold Chad accountable for what he's done is if there exists some kind of a membership covenant or some kind of a membership promise that we make to one another. And in all of these, Chad would be right. He would be totally right. Jesus in, And so Jesus' instructions here in, in Matthew 18, they assume that everybody involved agrees on who we mean by the church. Okay? And, and, and it, it, we all agree that Chad has joined himself to this group of people called the church, and he's joined himself to us in such a way that we can expect better of him. We can expect different of him because he joined the church. And if that's not true, if we can't agree on that, if we don't have that common understanding, it's actually impossible for us to practice what Jesus tells us here. Do you see that? So clearly there is a formal step, a formal process uh, of, of that, that we would call membership, but what was, was also practiced in the ancient church. Let me show one more biblical argument for membership. This one comes from Acts 5. Maybe a little bit more obscure, perhaps disturbing, but here you've got a married uh, couple named Ananias and Sapphira, and they sold their farm, and they donated some of the money, and they said, hey, here's what we, here's what we got for the sale of our farm, and, but they kept some of it back. They said that this is all they got, but they actually kept some of it back. And then they both dropped dead. Okay. And, uh, and lots of people there saw it happen and it scared them. And while there are lots of people at the time who are committing their lives to Jesus and they're joining the church in those days, the text tells us in Acts chapter 5, 11 to 13, it says that great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Now, many of these, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hand of the apostles. None of the rest dared to join them, but the people held them in high esteem. You can see that in verse 13, none of the rest dared join them. Now, you should ask, what does this have to do with membership? Well, notice that after what happens with Ananias and Sapphira, the people, the witnesses, they realize that to, quote, join them means something. Right? It means something. That's why the, the, the author, that's why Luke says, none of the rest dare join them. Because these witnesses, they saw what happened, and now they're saying them, to themselves, holy smokes, like those, those, the Pharisees are wrong. My word matters. Integrity matters. After this, after what I've seen, I really should only, quote, join them if I'm really truly ready to live out what it means to belong. Otherwise, I shouldn't join them. And so what, here again, what we see is that back in the earliest days of, of the church, it's known not just among believers, but it's also known among unbelievers that a church community isn't something that we're all just inherently part of. Not everybody is part of the church. We have to, quote, dare join them. We have to dare to join them. And that when we do, that has certain implications on, on how we live and what we believe and, and on our character. Now, we could go on and on with other biblical texts, but hopefully at this point, you're, you're just persuaded, though, that, that, that church membership, it's not only biblical, but it's actually normal, and it's, actually, and it's helpful. 
It's helpful. In fact, what I, what I hope that we hear the Lord saying to the church in this woe to us today is, is like, you guys, woe to us if, just like the Pharisees, we're, tr- we've, we're found trying to cut the costs of being a disciple when Jesus told us to count them. Woe to us if we are cutting costs when Jesus says count the costs. Because in our culture, we need strategies like a church membership in order to help us to get consumer Christianity in check. I think that's what it's going to take to help us get consumer Christianity in check. Strategies like church membership. Now, some of you might be wondering at this point, does Benediction Church have a membership covenant? The answer is yes, we do. The leadership team worked on it for months. Uh, I, I must say they did a really good job, and it, it does clarify what you can expect from the church and the leadership. It also clarifies what we're counting on you for. And I'd be happy to share that with you if you if you want, but that's not the point of today. Today, I'm intentionally not trying to prescribe what the membership process needs to look like. I'm not laying out for you how you become a member of Benediction Church. I'm only trying to make a case that it is so, so helpful and important that believers are formally connected to their church in membership. Let me illustrate that as I close. Um, can I just tell you about a time that I screwed up? Can I tell you about a time that I, I actually, it was I sinned against somebody and I, I really hurt them? This was the first church where Heather and I were, were members together. And I was the worship leader there every week. And we had this musician on the team who wasn't particularly reliable. She was super gifted and she knew it. But she was always late for practice. She never brought her music. She often needed a ride. Never really, you know, said thanks for the ride. <laughs> like, that's it just it really, really bugged me. Really got to me. She had a, just a really bad attitude. Very entitled. And and uh, as a leader, <clears throat> I took it way too personally. And I got fed up. And one night, I wrote to her a long email, which you know is just a terrible idea, right? You you know not to write long emails late at night, right? You know, do we do we agree that that's wise not to? It's wise not to do that. Okay, good. So I wrote her a long email where I said a whole bunch of selfish things and passive aggressive things and things bordering on abusive, and it wasn't it was not okay. It was wrong, but but at the time I was so proud of it, and I was sure that it would change her, and that's that is not what happened. In fact, what happened was her mother got a hold of that email. She forwarded it to all the families of the church, all of them. And her mother and father, they sat me down after church that Sunday and they screamed at me for being a bully and for being a jerk and for being a hypocrite and for being a bad leader. And, you know, they were not wrong. That They weren't, they weren't wrong about that. But I was so offended and blinded and betrayed because they had taken my private email and sent it out across the church. I was so blinded by my anger about that, that um, I was done. In fact, if it were up to me alone, I know I would have left the church. I would have, I would have not only left that, that church, I would have walked away from church altogether. I would have bailed on the church and I would never have looked back. And I, I know that I would have. But the pastor asked if we could meet. And he came over and I knew that he loved me. And in fact, he and his wife came over and sat down with Heather and I. We had a, we had a long, hard visit. He, he asked a lot of hard questions. And he said a lot of hard things. Um, and by the end of it, frankly, I was bawling. I was bawling my eyes out. 
But to them, you know what it wasn't? It wasn't a gotcha moment. It was a teachable moment. Because to them, yes, Mike sinned. Yes, Mike failed. And, and yes, Mike might even reject their advice and Mike might leave, but they were willing to risk it because they knew that we were committed to each other as members of the church. Like if that commitment meant anything, they knew that they could take the risk and come and ask those hard questions and say those hard things. And you know what? By God's grace, it worked. And I'm still here. Well, one last story with this, I'll close. Years ago, I was having breakfast with a friend of mine. Uh, I'll call him Phil. And Phil Phil was a member of the church where I was one of the leaders. And Phil was married to a, just a wonderful woman. They had several kids together. And I'd known him for a long, long time. But this time over breakfast, he was actually really nervous. And eventually, through the conversation, he came to share that he's he's actually come to realize that he is gay. That he's gay. And he, he realized that he always has been. And uh, he shared the story with me. And um, he didn't know what this means for us. He didn't know what this was going to mean for his relationship with me or with the church. He knew that he loves Jesus. He knew that he loves scripture. He know, knew his Bible really well. He, and he studied it. He spent, you know, deep, powerful times with, with Jesus in scripture. He loves the church. But he, he didn't want to lose my friendship. And it was like this burden that he had been carrying for a really long time. And, and, and I could see it was so isolating for him. It was so painful for him. And, and he just wanted somebody to know. Well, I, I listened and I, I thanked him for, for trusting me with this part of his life. And we, had a, we actually had a great conversation. But it made me realize... I can't imagine what it would be like to, to need to share that with someone and not know whether they will stick with you or reject you. Could you imagine that? Like imagine if Phil had come to me and shared that with me and my response was, oh, sorry, Phil, this is more than I am comfortable with. Like, sorry, Phil, but our membership vow doesn't cover this sort of scenario. And so we are released of our responsibility towards you. Have a, a nice life. Can you imagine if I rejected him in that way? Now, woe to us if that's how we respond to each other as a faith community. Woe to us if that's how we treat a brother and sister in a time of need, in a time of pain and hurt, a person who's in need of healing and help and support. That is not who we are. That's the way of the Pharisees, but that is not the way of Jesus. And it is, it is so countercultural, isn't it? Isn't it? That Phil knew he could trust that I would listen and I would love him and support him. And he knew that he could expect that because we were members together of the same body. And so when he shared that with me, that was, that moment, that was, that was holy. It was holy. And just like I need Phil to help me carry my cross, Phil knew that he needed me to help him carry his cross. You get that? Like just like just like I know that I need a guy like Phil to help me carry my cross and not make it any harder. Phil knows he needs me to do my best to help him carry his. And that's what membership is. Thank you. 
Thanks for listening to this message from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. Feel free to copy and share these resources, but please don't alter the content in any way. We invite you to visit us online again soon at www.benediction.church for more teaching and information about how you can join us in serving and praying that it would be in Hamilton as it is in heaven.